talking about this morning is why why things are the way they are in the culture. It seems like the further along we go in life, the more evil happens. Where does evil come from? Why does God allow evil? All those kinds of questions. Maybe at the end, there might be some questions that you want to have answered that I don't, that I don't address. I'm going to address quite a few things. But if, uh, if I don't answer your concern, we can certainly chat about that at the end. If there are questions throughout the time together, certainly ask them. But I'll just kind of keep on tracking because I know you have other things to do today. But let's pray together and let's get right into this study. Fathers, we come to you right now. We thank you so much for this morning and for each one that's here. And pray, God, you just bless in our time together as we look at this very important topic, a topic that is heavy on our hearts. All of us have faced evil in one way or another. Personally in our lives, whether we've been abused, we've been robbed, maybe have been we faced gunpoint, or certainly we see it on the news all the time. We have friends, family members who have uh, maybe lost their lives as a result of some evil person So I pray, God, you would just open our hearts to be able to see what your word has to say about this, see how all this uh, is manifesting itself in the culture around us. For it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. In the emails that I sent out, just encouraging folks to consider coming here, you might remember some of the questions that I asked. I mean, how is it that this man could go into a church service on a Wednesday night, sit there, appear to be praying with a group of people and then get up, murder them in cold blood, and then just walk away. How could a person do that? Where, what, what generates in the heart of a person? Some would say, well, he was a white supremacist. Well, what, what produced that? What, what, would leave, what would cause a woman to leave a couple of children in a, in a hot car while she goes into a motel room, does her thing, and, and they perish? I mean, what, you know, what's going on in the thinking there? And we can just go on and on of, of these different scenarios that happen. Why is it that, uh, that people do those things? Why does evil exist? And, it, and I guess we would all agree that it does exist. And the fact of the matter is, why are we all equally evil? Why do some of us never even consider doing something like that? And what leads some people down that path? What is it that causes some people to, to be these, these, what we might call terrible, heinous, evil people, and yet we're trying to live in this culture? So those are some of the things we're trying to talk about today and to try to get to the bottom of where does evil come from and then what can be done about it? Is there something uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to believe, I'd like to say, not believe, but I'd like to say, we could do something about it. We could just change all this. But there certainly are some things that can be done if we have, if we and others have the constitution and the willingness to do so. So let's talk about that. First of all, where does evil come from? The, uh, the item there on your, on your study guide, one idea that people propose as to where evil comes from is God. Number one there is God. And you notice there I have a question mark on there because I don't believe that's where evil comes from. And I would guess most of us do not believe that's where evil comes from. But there are people that would say, well, God created everything. Everything came from him. So did he create evil? Did 
He caused evil to be for some purpose. Is there some reason why God allowed evil to exist for some eternal purpose? And, and so what people would say is, all this is God's fault. Some would say, who practice evil or who practice a lifestyle different than what we would see as a normal lifestyle, they would say what? God made me this way. This is, this is why I am the way I am, because God made me this way. So therefore, it's all God's fault. Well, if we say that God creates evil or makes evil or God causes certain people to be certain, certain ways in life, then couldn't the child molester say that? Couldn't the thief say, oh, I'm a thief because God made me a thief? Couldn't the mass murderer say, well, I'm a mass murderer because God made me to be a mass murderer. He just needs some people on, on the earth to take some people out, and that's he made me that way. Well, none of us would actually go down that path, but that's the thinking that some people develop in taking the responsibility off of themselves to put the responsibility somewhere. And since God created everything, then evidently God created evil, and it's all his fault. Well, let me share with you how we can prove in the Bible that God does not create evil. In fact, God is the inventor. He's the maker of good. In Genesis chapter 1, if you have your Bible with you, you don't need a Bible today, but if you have one, you certainly travel along with me. We go all the way back to the beginning and think about how God created all that we know as the creation of God. And if you want to jot down some notes here, you can just put, or jot down a reference here, you can just put Genesis 1 there, there by side God there. But just as I read down through this, I want to emphasize the points I want you to see here about God being the author of good, not evil. It says here in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered on the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 4, and God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness he called night, so the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, let there be firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divide the waters that were under the firmament from the waters that were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth. He gathered together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. <laughs> then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that, that yields seed, a fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit whose seed whose seed is itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. we got a theme going here, don't we? So the evening and the morning were the third day. And then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. Let, the, let them be signs for the seasons and for days and years. Let them be for lights in the firmament and lights to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and he made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. <laughs> so the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters abound 
with the abundance of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth, across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves, with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Let the waters in the sea, let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth a living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. <laughs> And then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That's key there. Let, then God said, let us make man in our image. That, according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and the cattle over all, and the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God noticed, verse 31, then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So what we have here, after all that reading, is simply an affirmation that God doesn't create evil. He creates that which is good. So we could say, if you want to note there on your note, you, you might just want to, if you want to, you can just strike out God there just for the sake of, of your notes, because we would actually agree to say that God does not create evil. He creates that which is good. And so that reason that we see there is the fact that God does create good and not evil. Now, another one, we could go to another verse, less reading, but just another very familiar story. Go with me to Matthew chapter 13. And notice what we have here in Matthew 13. This is the situation uh, that we know as the parable of the sower or the parable of the seeds. And if you would, Notice in chapter 13, beginning there at verse 3, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And so the, the parable here tells about a, a man that goes out and sows seed. Notice verse 4. He sowed some seed by the wayside. The birds came. And so there's the parable of the sower there, and he's sowing out the seed. If you would drop down just for the sake of time, and verse 24 he continues on this idea of sowing of seed. And notice what it says in verse 24. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. And when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Now, tares, of course, would be poison. It would be weed that you would not want to eat. So how is it that these two, how is it that this, this bad seed came to be where this good seed was sown? And of course, what we're seeing here is a comparison between evil and good. He said to them, an enemy has come 
an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? In other words, gather up the tares? He said, no, lest you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, or at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather the tares and bind them in the bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So he goes on, talks to them about a little bit more about sowing and reaping. But drop down to verse 36. He actually, Jesus actually then gives his own interpretation of this account, of this parable, and what he meant by that parable. Look at verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away, went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. So we got the good. We got God here, the Lord God sowing good. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be weeping or wailing and gnashing of teeth. So we have here again an interesting story here, a parable, and of course a parable is what? It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so we have here a parable of the Lord telling us how it is that evil gets sown into the world. So we're already getting an idea here. What we already know is how it is that evil gets to be a part of us and how it gets to be a part of the world in which we live. So the point we need to see here, number one, is God is not the producer of evil. He's the sower of good. He's the creator of good. Well, let's go to the second point here. Where is it then if God did not create evil, then where did it come from? It actually comes from Lucifer. If you would, there on number two, write down Lucifer, L-U-C-I-F-E-R. And you notice here the, the point that we're focusing on here is the pride of Lucifer. Now, Lucifer we know as who? As Satan, as the devil. But originally, Lucifer was what? He was an angel. In fact, he was a perfect angel. God does not create evil. God did not even create Lucifer to, to produce evil. Or, and there again, some would say, well, see there, it's God's fault. God evidently messed up in creating Lucifer in some way that caused him to have a flaw. There must be some kind of flaw in the mix somewhere because if evil came from Lucifer, then, it, then God created Lucifer, then it's... God's fault. You can kind of see how they logically see that. But let's look at that. Now, in the Ezekiel account, we won't take the time to go. They've already read quite a bit of text this morning. But in the Ezekiel account, it talks about him being the seal of perfection, being perfect in beauty, that he was created by God. He was anointed cherub, perfect in all his ways until iniquity was found in him. Now, what was it then that led Lucifer to be a wicked angel. He was created perfect. He was created good. He was created, I mean, there were many angels, myriad of angels. 
But you think of a counterpart to Lucifer would be Michael. Michael the archangel who had many angels under his charge. Lucifer was an angel who had been given a, a, a level of power, a level of position. He was a cherub angel with other angels under his leadership. Michael always did good. Lucifer went bad. What was it that caused Lucifer to go bad? He wasn't made to be Satan. He wasn't created to be Satan. What was it? And the, and the book of Isaiah gives that to us. If you want to write down and go with me, Isaiah chapter 14. These are chilling words as we think about, and now we, we're actually getting to the moment and the time of evil being brought about. Here's where it began. If somebody ever asks you after they, where does evil come from? It's right here. Isaiah chapter 14, and beginning at verse 12. Now, of course, Isaiah now is writing about the event that has already happened, where Lucifer has already made his decision, and evil has already been created in his own heart. But we see Isaiah's declaration and writing about that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 14, 12. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations? Notice verse 13. You have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be, what, like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. So that's why I have there in your study guide that Lucifer is the one that we can put the responsibility of evil being a part of life right on his heart. And it was because of pride. Lucifer, his arrogant, selfish pride caused evil to be created. Isaiah tells us it started right there in his heart. Well, you say, well, then this goes right back to God. Somehow there must have been a flaw in the mix. If, if God created Lucifer, Lucifer then has now has the ability to somehow create evil in his own heart. There must be a weakness in the creation. And we again would say no. Let me share with you how God creates. Remember, we read it in, in chapter 1 of Genesis, read it a couple of different times, that, that man was created in the image of God. Now, when we think about image, we think of looking at ourselves in the mirror. There's an image. We think about these pictures on the wall. These are images. But the idea there of image means likeness, similitude, similar. So we are created similar to God. Now, does God look like us? Do we look like God? Not in that visible, physical sense. But there are many different ways we are created in the image of God. I've talked about that in other times, but there's just one I want us to think about this morning is the ability to choose. God has free will, does he not? It was God's decision to create all the plants and the animals and the, and the whales and the fish and I don't know why he created some things. You'll have to ask him about that later. 
Uh, I don't know why I decided to create, you know, little spiders that can kill. I mean, I don't know why all those things are. But the fact of the matter is God has ability to choose. And we were created in the image of God in that way. We have the ability to choose. Now, Lucifer was created in the image of God. He had the ability to choose. Without the ability to choose, without free will and choice, then, then what are we? We're robots. We're really nothing more than, think about uh, years ago you bought your, your daughter or granddaughter a little doll with a string in the back that, just, that said, you know, I love you. I'm hungry, you know, whatever. And, and so if, if we were made as robots, God could have made us to where we had to say, I love you. Well, then we would not be made in the image of God. To be made in the image of God, then we must have a will to choose. Lucifer was made with that will to choose, and he chose what? He chose evil. He chose incorrectly. He chose a prideful way about him. And, and, just, and we'll get to ourselves here in just a minute. We'll see how even Adam and Eve made the choice, an incorrect choice. Well, let's, let's move on here. We've got a lot to cover. Let me give you some blanks here. Some of the results of pride, as spelled out in Scripture, first of all, is shame. First bullet there is shame. Proverbs 11.2 says, when pride comes, then comes shame. The second bullet there, strife. We'll not look all these up, but I've given you the references there. You can look them up. I'm going to quote some of these for you. By pride comes nothing but strife. Proverbs 13.10. The third one there, Proverbs 16.18, destruction. One of the results of pride is destruction. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The next one, Proverbs 21.24, scoffing. A proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name. He acts with arrogant pride. Psalm 10.2, persecution of the poor. I don't know if you can get all that in there, but the wicked in his heart or the wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. You think about somebody who persecutes somebody who's already down on their luck. Where does that come from? comes from pride. First uh, Timothy 3, 6, spiritual condemnation. Now, First Timothy 3 lists the various qualifications of a pastor. And you remember those. You've probably read down through those before. And one of those uh, qualifications listed there is that he not be a novice. Remember that one? Lest he be lifted up with pride and suffer the condemnation of the devil. So right there, even in the qualifications of a pastor, the Holy Spirit led Paul to write to Timothy about the danger of pride even in the life of a pastor and that we don't want pride in the heart of our pastors. Another thing leads to another is captivity. Jeremiah 13, 14 and 17 deals with captivity. And if you want to, you might want to put aside their jail time. It, the the result of pride, when pride runs amok, it results in jail time, captivity. But if you will not hear it, my soul, I will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. So the idea of captivity. Self-deception 
is another result of pride. Well, that was, that was Lucifer. He deceived himself thinking he could become like God. Obadiah 1.3 says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. And it goes on. There's more to it. You can look that one up. Another one is bitterness. 1 John 2.16 is bitterness. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And pride of life manifests itself in bitterness. Seeing evil things. In 1 Samuel 17, there is an accusation made about one who's come down simply to see the battle, wanted to just come and see what, was, what the battle was all about. And sometimes people who are caught up in pride simply are a part of, they just desire to see evil things, see things they ought not see. The point that we need to see there, are we all, we all okay? That evil actually began in the heart of Lucifer. And he is the one that where evil began. And so it wasn't a creation of God. It wasn't that God foreordained Lucifer to be evil. He did create him. God did create him to have free will. And Lucifer just chose incorrectly. And that's where evil then began. Another item here that, that, that we need to see here, how evil is a part of our culture is disobedience. Number three there on your study guide disobedience. Now, once again, we've read already about Adam and Eve being created and they were created, what? Perfect in the image of God. And they were made also with the ability to choose. And God told them what they could eat and what they could not eat. And once again, someone could say, well, see, there it is. If God wouldn't have put that, put that situation there where they could have chosen evil it's all God's fault but once again what is free will free will is the choice to serve God or to reject God and without free will once again we're just we're just robots and so God created Adam and Eve in his image in the image of God he created them male and female he created them and so that's where we see then how this begins, begins to be a part and becomes a part of our culture. Well, Adam and Eve is placed there. And what happens to Eve? She is deceived. The enemy deceives her and says, you'll not die if you eat, that, eat of that tree. You'll be like God if you eat of that tree. Well, she eats. She's deceived. She give, the Bible says she gives her husband and he eats. And what happens? That's the moment right there. And it's in, of all that you could read, you could write down Romans 5.12 there on disobedience. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man, what? Sin. sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death has passed upon all men and women, because all have sinned. So the idea there is because of their disobedience is how sin gets to be a part of life. That's how it is. And every time someone dies, it's a result of sin. Not that they did some kind of sin that caused their death, but it's the permeating power of sin. And it's important for us to remember the difference between sin and sins. Sins are things like lying, stealing, cheating, whatever. The sin is what? It's the prompter. It's the motivator to lead us to sin. I don't know if you ever watch any of the Star Wars movies but there's a scene in the very first star wars well it's actually the 
the fourth one because you know they did four, five, and six, and then one, two, and three. But the very first one chronologically they came out with, there you have Luke Skywalker as he's he's young Luke, and he's they're they're getting a chance to purchase R2D2. Remember that whole scene? And, and they purchase another, they initially purchase another little little robot. He's he's got a red top, and I, I don't know if he's R4D4 or something. He's he's got his own number. But then he kind of he kind of kind of blows up before they even get away from the sale. He kind of springs, the smoke comes out of him and says, he's got a bad motivator. Well, that's kind of like what sin is. Sin's the bad motivator. As a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience, each of us have inherited a bad motivator, and it's called sin. And it's what causes us to lie, cheat, steal, things like that. Well, of course, we know that the answer to all that is Jesus on the cross. He's the one that deals with sin. He's the one that paid for our sins. But it's important for us to remember at this juncture the difference between sins, plural, and sin, singular. And as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience, sin entered into the world. Let's move on then, and that takes us to point four, and sin then really is the problem. Now, there are many verses in the Bible that speak of sin. One is Romans 5, 12. You want to write that one down. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. Another one you might want to write down there, Romans 3, 10. In fact, if you have your Bible there, if you're tracking with me, go to Romans 3 for a moment. Notice how Paul, in the Roman account, and what Paul is doing in this Roman letter is communicating how everyone needs to be saved. The pagan man needs to be saved. The religious man needs to be saved. The moral man needs to be saved. Everybody needs to be saved. Nobody except the Lord Jesus himself, everybody needs to be saved. No one is free from this need to be saved. And notice in Romans 3.10, it says, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. Read along there. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have, have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And we can just read on and on there. So we've all sinned. In fact, if you go to verse 23, that's nobody you might want to write down. Romans 3.23 for what? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When you witness to someone, when you share someone and, and you want them to be saved, there's always that delicate moment where you need to bring them to the point of admitting in their heart that they have sinned. Well, in our pride, we don't want to admit that we're sinful people. When we talk to people, people will say, well, I'm fine. God's fine. I'm fine. We're, we're fine. But the fact is we're not fine, are we? Because we've all Sinned. And so that's a delicate moment in a witnessing opportunity, but it's a point you must come to. So we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, if, if we've all sinned, here, here's a key question. If Lucifer then is the one that started all this, if disobedience of Adam and Eve was a part of all this, and that's how sin came into the world, then why aren't we all equally sinful? Why don't we all do the same things? Now there are things we don't. We're not going to raise. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand and tell me how you how you sin. But if we if we were to be real honest today, we're not going to be that's honest. And and to list on say we had some paper on the wall here and we listed all the all the ways we've sinned. 
There would be some common ways we've sinned, but then there would be some uniqueness in each one of us. So the reality is we don't all sin in the same way. And John, in 1 John chapter 2, gives us some help here. So if you would turn to the back of your Bible there to 1 John, remember 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, very near the back of your Bible, Jude then Revelation. So uh, we're very much at the closing books of our Bible. But in 1st John 2, John gives us in capsule form here that we don't have time to unpack today, how it is that sin manifests itself in each of our lives in a different way. Notice what it says here, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world. Notice John now is, is putting everybody in, 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 a, in a threefold picture here. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Out of, the, of means out of the source of this world system we're living in. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Of course, the will of God would be to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. But what we see there, three different manifestations of evil and sin in the life of a person. Either the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. Do you see that? Now, from studies, personal and even uh, real scientific studies, we can say that about 70% of men have the first problem here, the lust of the flesh. 70% of men have a problem with the lust of the flesh. Now, that does not mean that 70% of men are out cheating on their wives. It just means that 70% of men, the natural tendency of how sin manifests itself in their lives is the lust of the flesh, which we would also refer to as immoral activity. It's the reason why there are topless nightclubs. It's the reason why there's Playboy magazine, Hustler, Penthouse, things like that. It's because men have the lust of the flesh. Now, it doesn't mean they have to do that. It doesn't mean it, that that is a foregone conclusion. But it's the reason why those things are out there for men. Now, what is also interesting is 70% of women have the problem with the pride of life. 70% of women have problem with the pride of life. Pride of life manifests itself in bitterness. We, we talked about that just a few minutes ago. Now, that doesn't mean that 70% of women are all walking around with snarls on their faces and, and are bitter women, but, but I think each of us know people like that. Bitterness says you didn't have a right to treat me the way you treated me. That's how bitterness voices itself. And 70% of women have a problem in that area. Doesn't mean they have to be bitter. Doesn't mean it's, it's been prescribed in them to always be bitter. But when flesh, when the sin is manifesting itself in their life, in their heart, that's the way it comes out in 70% of women. Now the other people, the other 60%, 30% men, 30% women, have a problem with the lust of the eyes. That's the middle one there. And the lust of the eyes manifests itself in materialism. Materialism is, the way you know if you are a materialistic person, is you are a, 
You are a sensual person. You, you, you always love the new things. You buy a new car, not because you need a new car, but because you like the new smell of the new car. You like the prestige of a new car. That doesn't mean you're a bad, bad person. It just means that's a manifestation of how sin manifests itself in your life. Now, some of you might be saying, well, I've got a real problem. i got all three of those. Well, you know, we, we have difficulty in all three of these areas. But one of these will rise to the top as the basic, what we call flesh pattern of how sin manifests itself in our lives. And that's why, that's one of the main reasons why we don't all express sin in the same way. It's because of how flesh somehow gets into our system and manifests itself uniquely. But another way of how we can determine, how we can understand how evil comes, where evil comes from, and how it develops in our heart and how it is unique compared to other people is our next point. And as we look here, as we come to number five, there is our environment. The environment, capital E-N-V-I-R-O-N-M-E-N-T. The environment in which we were brought up. Now, this is key. Think about now what we've talked about, about pride, disobedience, sin. And now we're thinking here about the environment in which we were brought up. Let me give you a couple of, of scenarios here. Imagine a, a, a young boy, young girl, children brought up in a home where they're taught to love God, read the Bible, you know, obey the, the, the teacher at school, to respect police officers, respect their elders. Uh, kind of like an Andy Griffith kind of home, even though you know, in Andy's situation, a mother was was there at some point. We just, she was, we, we didn't ever get to see Opie's mother. But we, you have a, you have a wholesome environment there. Are you with me on that? Think about children brought up in that environment and what they might turn out to be. Now, it's not a foregone conclusion that they're going to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. Opie had his own rebellion. Opie wanted to run away from home. And uh, there, there's all those little stories there. But let's think about that kind of environment. And let's compare that to a, to a boy or a girl brought up in a mafia family where the killing of people is a normal thing. And whether the mafia family, whether they were into drugs or prostitution or alcohol, whatever it was that was their thing to do, imagine a child being brought up in that environment compared to the other one we just mentioned. Do you think there'd be a difference? The, the, just the environment of being around certain kinds of lifestyle is going to affect people. This is why we are very concerned, and this is why you know some of our laws have been have been set aside. But it used to be it was very it was very protected. Who could be who could actually be a foster parent? Who could actually adopt a child? Why? Because we wanted to make sure that child was brought up in a wholesome environment, not an environment that was hostile, not an environment that would lead them down some kind of alternate lifestyle. We wanted to protect these children because it's very important that they grow up in a wholesome environment. So the idea here is the environment in which we grew up in, it doesn't it doesn't uh, guarantee that we're going to be perfect. It doesn't guarantee that we're going to, to be bad, but it certainly has an effect. 
Now, as we think about that mafia family, go with me to the Corleone family. Most of us, if not all of us, have watched the Godfather trilogy movies. In the early part of the first Godfather movie, Michael is a war. He's a war hero. He's well. He's he's signed up to be a you know. He's kind of putting some things together here. But he's agreed to to be a, an officer in the military. He goes off to to serve, and 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 as he's thinking about now marrying Kate, remember that scene where. Kate's just beginning to understand what this mafia family was all about. And some of these guys really are shady characters. And, and Michael says to Kate, in five years, the family is going to be legitimate. Michael seems to have good plans. But what happens? Michael begin, becomes the worst of all. He becomes the worst villain of the bunch. Even to the point of having his own brother executed. What we have here is just a couple of, you say, well, that's just television. But it's, it's reality in that how the environment in which a person is brought up and how it affects the way they turn out. Well, you put all these things together, pride, disobedience, sin, the environment, and the real kicker, the real core, the heart of the problem is number six, and it's called the wicked heart, the wicked heart. Now, when I did, when I began studying and noticing what the Bible had to say about the wicked heart, I was shocked. And right here in the Word of God, it tells us exactly where all this comes from. Now, if you want to jot down Jeremiah seventeen nine, Jeremiah in Jeremiah seventeen nine says this: "The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked." Who can know it? The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, God can know it. And the Holy Spirit in the Word tells us the manifestations of wicked heart. Now, when I say the wicked heart, I'm not talking about this four-chamber pumping machine in your body. We're talking about the core of a person, where the mind, will, and emotion comes together and the personality is formed. That's the heart of a person. It's That's how... They, they make the decisions that they make. It's the in, innermost part of that person. Jesus even spoke of the heart. In fact, if you have your Bible there, turn with me to Mark chapter 7. We, we need to see this, and we're going to come back to this. What Jesus says about the heart and what the Bible says about it. In Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees are confronting Jesus about the disciples not washing their hands. And so what we're, what he's talking, what they're talking about here is about spiritual defilement. And notice uh, what we have here. I think we can just stop. Let's just start at verse one, just so we get the full context. It says, then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come to, having come from Jerusalem. Now, when they saw that some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding tradition of the elders. Now, all this is going to have a point here. Verse 4, And when they come from the market, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, 
couches, and stuff. And so we have here, we have the Pharisees now uh, laying an accusation against the disciples because they eat with unwashed hands. Well, you could read all about that. There's so much more we could say. But for the sake of time, go up to verse 15 or go over to verse 15 in that. So the, the Pharisees are all concerned about the, the disciples eating with unwashed hands and defiling themselves, spiritually defiling themselves. But notice what Jesus says in verse 15. He says, there is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. Isn't that interesting? So, of course, what they're saying is, what the Pharisees are all concerned about is these guys eating with unwashed hands or, or being spiritually defiled. Jesus now is really talking about the real center core of defilement is not what goes in, but what comes out. And how does that come out? In verse 16, he says, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. That's a favorite phrase of Jesus, which means there's more to the story here. There's more to the account than maybe what meets the eye. Verse 17, then when he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. He said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him, but it does not enter his heart, notice, but his stomach. So the idea here is, if you eat something that's maybe got a little bit of mold on it, I'm not rec recommending you eat molded food, but, but our bodies are able to handle a certain amount of poison or a certain amount of bad stuff that goes in. If you, if you drink some milk that's kind of on the edge of curdling or not, it's probably not going to kill you, probably not a good idea. But notice what Jesus says here, verse 19, but it, it does not enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated. We don't have to really exegete that too much, do we? thus purifying all foods. And he said to them, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. Far from within, notice, out of the heart of man proceeds these things. Let's stop right there. So what we have here, we'll come back to that here in just a minute. What we have here is from Jeremiah and from what Jesus said, we have the beginning understanding of the manifestations of a wicked heart. Now we're going to look down through these and we'll see how many of these we can relate to either from our past or maybe from our present. We'll see how many of these we relate to. So let's look at some of the manifestations of a wicked heart. Letter A there, a wicked heart is a, is a heart that renounces God. Renounces God. I'll give you some references here as I have them. I think I have some for most. Psalm 10, 13. It says, Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, notice, you will not require an account. So the, the wicked heart renounces God. We wonder why some people reject God or why we rejected God for so many years. We had a wicked heart. Letter B. The wicked heart desires to kill other people. Psalm 11.2, listen to what it says. The wicked bend the bow, they make ready the arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. In our day, it would say, the wicked loads the gun, prepares for the, for the moment to take the life of another person. Uh, I, I've not caught up much with what's going on here, but 
this this woman that was killed in Cordoba. I don't know why she was targeted. I don't I don't I don't know much about the details. You probably know, you obviously know more about it than I do. But we wonder why. What would lead a person just to take somebody's life? We we know of situations where where young men are initiated into gangs and they, and they have to kill someone to be a part of the gang. Well, it's because of their wicked heart. As a result of sin, as a result of disobedience, as a result of the environment that they, are, that they grew up in, or the environment that they're seeking to be accepted in. Desires to kill other people. Let us see here. The wicked heart doubts the existence of God. Psalm 14.1 The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The text goes on to say that it is corrupt. It does abominable works. So why is it that we reject God? Why is it that some of us maybe were atheists for years? <laughs> we had a wicked heart. From the sin that we inherited from Adam and Eve, from the environment that we grew up in, from our own choices, we doubted the existence of God. Letter D, the wicked heart is an evil heart. It is an evil heart. Psalm 28, 3. Do not take me away from the wicked and with the workers of iniquity who speak peace with their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. The wicked heart is an evil heart. Letter E, the wicked heart is an unfaithful heart. Any of us have trouble with unfaithfulness? We have some residue, maybe, of a wicked heart. Psalm 78, 8. And may not be like the fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright, whose spirit was not faithful to God. It is an unfaithful heart. Letter F there. The wicked heart devises wicked and evil plans. Wicked and evil plans. How is it that some people can come up with some of the most heinous evil things? It's because they have a wicked heart. Psalm, excuse me, Proverbs 6.18. Proverbs 6.18. A heart devises wicked plans and has feet that are swift in running to evil. Isn't that amazing? Right out of the Word tells us why it is people are the way they are. Letter G there, the wicked heart is a sorrow-filled heart. Proverbs 14.11. In Proverbs 14.11, the writer talks about the house of the wicked being overthrown. And then it says in verse 13, even in laughter, the heart may sorrow. Let's take a break here just for a moment. Think about, let's go back now to the mafia illustration and, and Michael. I don't remember if you remember that, that portion in the movie where he has his own brother executed. You remember that one? He's actually sitting in, they call it the lake house. And he's got his brother out there on the water with Al, his personal hitman. And he watches his personal hitman execute his own brother. And what's the, what, what happens next? Is he happy? Is he excited? He drops his head in sorrow. The wicked heart is a sorrowful heart. 
And, and, and we, would, we would think, you know, if these people are so sorrowful, why do they keep doing these evil things? It's a part of the deception of sin. It's a deception of the enemy. They have a wicked heart. They have a sorrow-filled heart. Letter H there, the wicked heart produces evil words. Evil words. Proverbs 15.28 The mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. We wonder why people talk the way they talk, trash talk and vulgar language the what they use. Where does it come from? It's coming from that heart. It's coming from that wicked heart. A wicked heart, letter I there, a wicked heart is a heart far away from God. Isaiah 29.13 In Isaiah 29.13, Isaiah talks about people who draw near to God, but their lips. They draw near to God with their lips, but their heart is far away from God. Remember that one? How about letter J here? A wicked heart is a heart that tends to backslide. <laughs> where, is back, where, where does backslidden come from? We, when we were kids, we grew up in church. Our preachers talked a lot about backsliding. Where does it come from? It comes from a wicked heart. Isaiah 57, 17. Isaiah 57, 17 goes with letter J. He speaks of those who backslide in the way of their heart. Letter K. The wicked heart is a dull heart. Jeremiah 10, 8. Jeremiah speaks of those who are dull-hearted and foolish. Letter L. The wicked heart is a stubborn heart. Uh, I'm sure there's no stubbornness in any of us. Ezekiel 2, 4. Ezekiel 2, 4, Ezekiel speaks of people in his day as impudent and stubborn children. Letter M. About to wrap this up here. The wicked heart is a heart that does not listen to God. Does not listen to God. I'm sure all of us do everything God always says for us to do. We never disobey God. We never turn a deaf ear to God. But a wicked heart does not listen to God. Ezekiel 3, 7. The Lord God said to Ezekiel, The house of, the, of Israel will not listen to you, because they will not listen to me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. We also see that in Acts 7.51, as Stephen accused the Sanhedrin as being stiff-necked and hard-hearted. What did they do to him? They killed him. They didn't like hearing that. Letter N is an unrepentant heart. A wicked heart is an unrepentant heart. The reason why we don't want to repent is the residue of a wicked heart. Ezekiel 13.22 Ezekiel says the wicked heart does not turn from its wicked way to save his life. Letter O here, the wicked heart is a destructive heart. Romans one. Verse 24. Romans 1.24 talks about how the wicked heart will even destroy itself. Letter P. The wicked heart is a blind heart. We find that in Ephesians 
And we also find that in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. You remember that one of the ploys of the enemy is to keep us blind to spiritual things, to keep our hearts blind as lost people. When we were lost, when we were without Christ, his goal was to keep us in the dark, to keep us blind. And then Q, the wicked heart is a covetous heart. It covets other things. 2 Peter 2.14 The Apostle Peter talks about the wicked heart as trained in covetous, covetous practices. Trained in covetous practices. Well then Jesus, in the account that we just read, let's go right back to that, Jesus lists these 13 manifestations of a wicked heart. And rather than having you write them all out, I'll just give them to you there. But let's read this text. Jesus now, remember, has been telling the Pharisees and reminding the people that it's not what goes in a person's mouth that defiles it, but what comes out. And what comes out, Jesus lists 13 manifestations of a wicked heart. Verse 21, Mark 7, 21, if you want to jot that down there just so you have it for future reference. For within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye. We talked a while ago about an evil eye. A wicked heart wants to see evil things. Blasphemy, rejecting God. Pride is the next. Foolishness. And then notice what he says here. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Jesus then lists these 13 manifestations of a wicked heart as a result of pride of Lucifer, the deception of Adam and Eve, sin entering into the world, the environment in which we grew up in. All this develops this wicked heart. Now, as saved people, we know we've been saved from a wicked heart. However, we also know that there's some residue left over. Now, I, I wish I could tell you all of us were perfect. We just we always make perfect decisions. We, and it, we walk with the Lord and we're faithful. And there are some people who who still today try to convince themselves they don't sin anymore. Uh, you think they're self-deceived or, or what? Uh, they're self-deceived. Well, another item here, item number seven on the back of your study guide, another reason for evil and uh, a result of evil in our land and evil in our in in the in our culture is a result of feelings people operating on feelings there's a whole lot we could say about that but our time is racing by here we have some more things to say here but when people do things simply because they feel like doing it Think about how many times that, that is the result. Feelings are very powerful in us. God made us as feeling people. And it takes our mind trained toward God and, and, our, and the, our will trained toward God to overpower the powerful emotion in us. How many times we hear people say, well, I just felt like doing it. And people operating out of feelings then do many evil things. This gang, then this is how, this is where evil comes from. And this is how it manifests itself in our culture. 
And this is how it manifests itself differently in different people as a result of flesh patterns that you have, the environment in which you grew up, the people that you hang around. And even now, let's imagine this, just nobody's going to do this. Let's imagine today we were to leave here in the next few minutes and go join some kind of immoral, illicit, awful group of people that just kill and do destructive things. How long would it take us to be just like them? Now, we're not going to do that. But we see the environment that we hang around, the people that we're around, affect the decisions that we make. Let me give you seven wrap-up points here. Sin is the problem. Sin is the problem. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, if you were to go and we, if we had an opportunity to go sit and visit with a gang today and tell them sin's the problem, what do you think? They'd probably shoot us. Yeah. Because they wouldn't they don't they don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear that sin's a problem, but but is sin something that we created? Sin is something we just sin was something that we inherited from our parents, from their parents, all the way back as therefore as by one man sin entered into the world. And the sooner we admit what the problem is, the sooner we can Find the solution to overcome the problem. God is the answer. Point number two, God's the answer. If you want to put Lord, the Lord God is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Put that in many different ways there. God is the answer. And that ties number three, God is not the enemy. So many people want to put God as the enemy. It's his fault. He did it. If he would have made uh, things differently, if he would have made Lucifer different, if he would have made Adam and Eve different, well, how would he have had to have made them as robots to make them love him, to make them choose him, and therefore they would not have been created in the image of God. Number four, we, we may uh, want to, you may want to debate me on this one, but in many places, in many situations, our nation has outlawed God. And now we're getting to the core of the problem. Our nation has outlawed God. Think of the number of ways God has been outlawed. Take Bible out of school. Take prayer out of school. Take, take, make it illegal for even basketball players and football players to be able to pray before they go out there and beat each other up on a football field or a basketball court. Think of the numbers of ways that God has been outlawed. And yet those who are the proponents of getting God out of our culture think they're doing a good thing. But who are they serving? they're serving Satan they're serving the enemy God's not the problem and our nation has outlawed God in many ways evil cannot be notice this one if we had more time we developed this and I will talk about it a little bit evil cannot be removed by willpower legislation or a police force as important as those things are now, why would I say that? You know, am I being negative against police? Absolutely not. I'm going to explain this. Evil is like darkness. Can you turn off darkness? Can't turn it off. You can turn on light, but you can't turn off darkness. We need we need honest judges. We need the willpower to do what we need. We need honest judges. Think about the legis- We need a powerful police force. We need judges, we need jails, we need prisons to put these guys away. But 
we can't build enough prisons, have a powerful enough police force, and honest enough legislation and judges to do away with evil. Because you can't turn off evil. Think with me before we go on here, one more illustration. We're about, about finished. I don't know if you ever watched Blue Bloods. Blue Bloods is one of our favorite TV series to watch. Several seasons ago, I think it was in season three, maybe season four, there's a situation there where there's a housing project, a multi-tower housing project that has been, become overrun by a gang. Uh, where they are peddling drugs and they're just they're getting kids into into bad stuff, and I think it's called the Bitterman Project. You remember that? Remember that episode? Well, in the process of the mayor and the police commissioner, played by Tom Selleck, they're going to try to you know meet the situation head on because the the problem in the housing project is they say when we call you don't come. You don't care about us. You've given us. You've given up on us, and so they've decided to meet as a as a as two leaders, and they're going to address the issue. Some of you remember this scene. In this in this particular scene, we have the police commissioner sitting there. We have the mayor. Well, the police commissioner Tom Selleck usually he's the star of the, you know everything that he says. Everything just goes the way. But in this particular situation, when he starts speaking, they boo him, they shout him down, he finally just quits talking. The mayor decides to get up, and he's going to get the group back in order. Well, what's going on behind the scenes the mayor does not know about, there's a gun in the room. The gun is being passed down the way through the gang, and it is given to a young man who is mentally challenged. Now, the young man has been told the gun is fake. That it's a toy. That it's just going to make some noise. Nobody's going to get hurt. And at a prompting of one of these gang members, the young man that's mentally challenged stands up and shoots the mayor four or five times. Remember that scene? And he becomes permanently disabled uh, from the waist down, I believe. He's put in a wheelchair. What we have there is a situation where evil is triumphing. Well, as a result of that, then, Tom Selleck, the police commissioner, decides in a show of force... We're going to take over the Benjamin Project. Remember that? And, and this massive police force shows up, and, and, they, and they take all of the gang guys out one by one. They arrest them, put them in handcuffs, take them out. And, of course, the residents of the Benjamin Housing Project, they are applauding the police force. They are excited. Now, that's the way the episode ends. But let's think about how life would continue. Does that remove all evil from the Bitterman Project forever? No. There are those times when we need that powerful police force to get a hold of something and get things back to where they ought to be. But something has to be put in place or evil just comes right back. It's like evil has eternal life, doesn't it? It's like evil just cannot go away. It's like it's always out there ready to, to find a resurgence in its power. That takes us to the next one here. Number six, the solution is overpowering evil with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now the ACLU wouldn't want to hear that. They don't they don't want they don't think that's the, the way. The atheists would not want to hear that. There's got to be another way. Can't be Jesus Christ. That can't be the answer. Those who are opposed to God, 
those who are who are in favor of social liberties and we let children believe whatever they want to believe that would be that would be indoctrinating them that would be brainwashing them but god's the answer a change of heart is the answer and how else can a heart be changed except through the lord jesus christ and each one of us in this room who are believers in christ are testimonies to the power of god to change a heart because who knows where we would be today were it not for the salvation of God. I've said many times, if it were not for Christ, I would probably be in prison or dead. I mean, in the, in the culture that I grew up in, in some of the stuff I was involved in, who, and you could probably say the same thing, were it not for the grace of God, where would I be today? And so the answer is, the solution is overpowering evil with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to the degree, number seven, to the degree people turn back to God, evil can and will be defeated. When we think about Memphis, it's easier for us to talk about Memphis. We don't, I, mean, I don't know if any of us live there, but it's, it's, it's heart-wrenching to think about Memphis and, and the way it is. I think depending on the statistical group you, you read, it's either the worst or the third worst dangerous city to live in in America. We would like to think, we would, we would like to say, Mayor, if you, would, if you would just marshal up a powerful police force, you could get rid of it. You know where the drugs are. You know what the problem is. If you could just get rid of it, and then you could restore your city. But what would have to happen? Something would have to be put in its place. And the only thing that's going to work is God and a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do they have the constitution to do that? They don't. We can pray to that end. We can certainly pray. But that is the heart of the problem. The wicked heart. As a result of disobedience, sin, the environment that we grew up in, produced in people, produces in people a wicked heart. Sin's the problem and God's the answer. Let's pray together and see if you have any questions you want to talk about. Fathers, we come to you right now. We thank you so much for this time we've been able to spend together to deal with a very delicate subject. And Father, I pray that each of us, as we leave here, would seek to do what we can to share the gospel with others. We'll never have the opportunity to be able to speak to 7,000, 10,000, 25,000 people at a time like a Billy Graham will be able to, but we can speak to people one at a time. And we can share with people the need to give their lives to Christ. He is the answer to the wicked heart. He's the answer to decisions that we might make that would be inappropriate. And so pray, Father, you would just bless us. I, I pray, Father, for our mayor. I, I pray for our police force. We certainly pray for Memphis and for this city that that we, we, where we love to go eat, we love to go shop, and we, we love to go up there and visit some of the things that, that Memphis has to offer, yet there's so much danger there. And Father, we pray for leaders, especially leaders who desire to, to improve their, the culture where they serve. Pray, God, you give them the constitution, the courage to be the leaders they need to be. And Father, may they realize that you are the answer. You're not the enemy. You are the answer to, you are the solution to the problem. Bless us, Father, as we leave here in a few minutes. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for being here today. Any questions, anything you want to chat about, 